Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. I, I think I really gave that the, the good FM rock DJ pronunciation of .com. AllAboutJazz.com. Uh, so anyway, go there. This show is available for free anytime you want it. All of the past episodes. Can you believe it? Four years worth of shows available for free whenever you want them at thejazzsession.com. You know, it's almost as if you should feel just slightly guilty for having all of that content and not paying a single thing for it. If only I could come up with some, wait a minute, what about a membership program? That is a good idea. You know what? Oh, hey, I already have one. Just looking at the website right here, you can become a member of this show already. That's fabulous. And I already have a membership campaign going on, 100 members by the 300th show. Man, I'm good. So listen, to celebrate the fact that I preempted myself by already creating the thing I just thought of creating, apparently using a time machine or something, why don't you become a member? Won't that feel good? Four years of free shows, two a week, and in the old days, three a week, and this month, three a week again, because I've gone a little interview crazy since coming to New York. Just become a member. For as little as 10 bucks a month, you can support this show. 10 bucks a month. I know there are some people, and you're not the ones I'm talking to, for whom 10 bucks a month is a stretch. But I have to believe, for the overwhelming majority of people with a computer and an internet connection who are therefore downloading this show that you can't even tell where 10 bucks a month goes in the average month. If I said account for every $10 that you spent, you couldn't do it. I couldn't do it, and I don't have any money. So I'm guessing that somewhere in your spending is $10 that you could shift over from bullets or iodine tablets or diet cheese, and you could shift that from that line of your budget into the support the jazz session line of your budget. Could you do that for me? Because we need to get to 100 members by the 300th show, or else the 300th show is going to be the grand finale of the jazz session. And I would prefer not to do that. I'd kind of like to keep doing this show, but it's got to start making a little bit of money. So that's that. What else have I got to tell you? The Respect Sextet did the theme music to this show. They've been paid handsomely for that, let me tell you. And they are at respectsextet.com. They've got lots of records there. Go and buy them all. They're all great. And they are often performing, so check out their event schedule too. And keep your eyes peeled at respectsextet.com for their forthcoming live album, which has already been recorded and is just being mixed and mastered. And you know they're putting in the messages when you play it backwards and all that stuff. Thanks also to Dave Rabel. He designed the show's logo, and he tweets at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, and he's very funny, so I recommend following him. You know, there are a lot of uh, people in the world. You may not have known that, but this is an educational show, and so I, I try to bring you know a little bit of knowledge with me when I come to the mic. Uh, there are a lot of people in the world, and, and it's impossible for any one person to have heard of every musician who's out there on the scene. And so, quite honestly, I had never heard of or heard Sean Smith until I was sent his record. And I was impressed. It's a good record, good writing, 
And then I went to meet the guy, and I was even more impressed. He's just one of those people you kind of feel good to be around. He's a super nice guy. And as you'll hear in this interview, he's had a very interesting uh, last year or so, incredibly traumatic, actually, uh, uh, the kind of trauma that really forced him to decide whether and how to continue to be a bass player. And I think uh, you'll be impressed with the way he came through it. And actually, I think you'll be impressed with the way he got into it in the first place. So... During the course of the conversation, he mentioned Bill Finnegan, a great arranger who goes way back to the big band era. And Bill Finnegan is the dedicatee. <laughs> oh, I hope that's a word. Uh, the person to whom this song is dedicated, it's called Betting Blind. My guest is bassist and composer Sean Smith, and uh, it's it's great to meet you. And thanks for having me here. Thank you. Great to meet you too. It's a pleasure. Let's uh, let's start off talking about uh, the new record, Trust, and start off talking about the title, if we can. Which I that that word trust comes up on this show a lot, and I think I'm guessing probably in exactly the way that you mean it, where it relates to jazz. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to title the record? Though? It's such a common. Uh, an important word, I mean, out, far outside of uh, music or jazz or anything like that, just in terms of uh, everyday life, uh, we all need to. It's a, I guess for everyone, everyone, it's a leap of faith uh, of sorts. Um, you get hurt while uh, doing that sometimes. But to answer your question, um, in music specifically, it's something that we all really really need to have and it, again it's a leap of faith and i don't know if you get hurt so much in music with it you you fall down and then you get back up and it's something that we all need to 
in a group everyone needs to have in order to uh, uh, make certain things happen. Is it something that takes a while to evolve, or is it the kind of thing that you can you can recognize you share right away with uh, with other musicians? Maybe both. Some certain kinds of trust uh, are just there. Um, and other kinds of trust, depending on the individual or individuals, um, certain other kinds of trust uh, develop over time. You know, with certain pairings of those individuals or the whole group, we're speaking, let's say, specifically about music. But again, I guess that could be said about anything in, sure. in life in terms of trusting. Can you talk about uh, the band on this on this record who you've been with for a while now? Sure. Uh, John Ellis plays uh, tenor and soprano saxophones um, one at a time. <laughs> uh, John Hart plays guitar. Uh, John's been with us, John Hart that is, uh, has been with us probably, well, um, he's our newest member, let's say. Uh, he's been with us for about a year and a half, okay. perhaps a little more than that. And our uh, oldest standing member, uh, originally from Toronto, Canada, is Russell Meisner, and he's our drummer. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the process of, of developing a working band and why it's important for you to have a stable collection of musicians. If you don't want to rehearse... <laughs> Uh, fair enough. <laughs> Finally, an honest answer to that question. <laughs> you know, because uh, most of my music doesn't really require uh, re rehearsal. It just requires a little bit of playing and exploring uh, the, the music. And the best way is, um, unless it's something that's really difficult that we'll have to run through uh, once or twice, which we may do it like a sound check, which we have. We only have a few of those, uh, frankly. But... Um, it's it's important to have a working band just to keep the keep the music growing. Um, I mean, we're not a, necessarily a band of all stars, um, and there's not, I guess, not one particular. Uh, well, there's not one star among us. We're just a group of uh, musicians that play this music very well and um, keep exploring it and finding new ways uh, to uh, new ways to express it. And I like I like that uh, process. Um, I like the freedom in that process, uh, where as a band and as individuals, we we grow within that. And there's a lot of again, there's a lot of trust there, where um, uh, we have the freedom to to do that.
it's interesting because uh, you said that in in that answer that the the kind of necessary ingredient for the music to develop was the band staying together, which some people might think was a little counterintuitive that you would add new things to the mix if you wanted the, the music to evolve. But it sounds like once you've developed that bass, it gives you the freedom for the music to evolve. Ab- absolutely. With the right group of people um, and with the uh, with certain restrictions, let's say, taken off of the... Uh, off of the music and the musicians uh, I mean I'm, I'm a bass player so it's really it's really hard to lead a group in terms of from kind of uh, the back half of the bandstand which is where I generally am because sure. um, I'm not fronting the band out, out front playing uh, all the melodies and controlling the situation let's say I count the tunes off and we generally agree on an ending it's generally not even by my my cue. So I'm interested in in that idea of leading, of being in a in a position in the band where you're not in playing an obvious leadership instrument. You're not standing out in front, even for example. Um, does that mean that you, because of that trust you've developed, that you are not worried about being controlling where the music is concerned, or that you have to find other ways to do it, or some mix of those things? Uh, I'm really not worried at all. You know, I'm I'm very lucky. I'm surrounded by uh, great musicians who are willing to, as individuals, give up their a certain amount of their individuality uh, in with regard to lo- just looking out for themselves and making the larger part of what this is this this quartet um, and the the music that we're playing um, happen and what's best for let's say maybe we're all asking ourselves at pretty much at any given time uh what's best for this tune as opposed to uh with i should say with regard to what we did on the last tune you know changing up the solo order um mostly we don't we don't talk about these things uh before we play the tune once in a while maybe i'll say uh maybe i'll play the first uh, we'll have a bass solo on this uh, maybe i'll play the first solo um part of the time actually most of the time we don't even have a bass solo you know cuz these other guys they play so great it's like i don't want to i feel as though i don't want to take up too much space um and generally when there's a bass solo as much as i love to express myself that way um, there's a certain, I don't want to say lull, but there's a certain quietness to the energy, which, you know, and so every tune having that would, I'm trying to keep it as interesting and, uh, as perhaps not, a, not about myself and just about the music as possible. And with these other, uh, especially with John Hart and John Ellis, uh, with their, uh, skills, passing things back and forth and, uh, soloing in different orders and different lengths of solos uh really stretching out stretching out perhaps unaccompanied perhaps stretching out as a as a duet and frankly that duet can be anything from um, bass and one of those instruments bass and guitar bass and uh, tenor or soprano to drums and guitar drums and tenor and soprano to uh tenor and or soprano and guitar if i've covered every possibility <laughs> i think we're all kind of willing to give give up something of ourselves in order to make the music interesting and i think in there there's still plenty of room to express yourself
did you meet the guys in the band? Russell I met through a mutual friend who was originally in the group. Um, he, it's funny. Uh, I had never heard his name before my friend mentioned it and recommend him recommended uh, Russell to be the the uh, drummer so we played with him once or twice and it was a great great call this was like boy 1999 or something it's okay. a long long time ago and uh let's see and what if i can interrupt you what what made it great how could you how could you tell okay this is this is a good fit well uh russell you know he plays a lot of different kinds of music and straight ahead is um perhaps closest straight ahead music is perhaps closest to his to his heart um but uh he he's he plays in a lot of other uh, a lot of other kinds of groups where it's not even we wouldn't even consider it jazz per sure. se i mean i don't wouldn't consider him a, like a pop drummer or something uh by any means but he probably could do that you know um he could go a lot of different directions and uh he sort of generally approaches things from uh less is more let me see what uh what's going to happen here and then uh usually just builds on that and in the course of uh the years i've been playing with him his playing is really really opened up and you know he's quite uh i should say he's gone quite from that less is more to um perhaps a little more uh of less is more <laughs> and even more on that he drives us m more so than he ever has you know he yeah. really his in his intuition on how to make that happen um is really uh impressive it's almost a cliche to talk about the relationship between a bassist and a drummer in a band but uh is that a key element for you the the, the lock between those it is, um, and uh, we get along just fine, and there's a lot of things we do in this group. Um, I mean, we're certainly, we're not inventing, uh, I don't believe we're inventing uh, grand new styles of music. We're just trying to, you know, trying to create and, and make good music at all times, and uh, there's certain things we do that aren't, wouldn't be considered straight ahead. We have some open sections, and we're just trying to find a new way to, I think, each time we play, within regards to good taste, uh, trying to find a new way to get around some of these, uh, get inside and get around some of these uh, open sections in, in particular, sure. let's say. And so we get along great. That's great. And uh, can you talk about how you met John and John? Uh, I'll speak, maybe speak about John Ellis um, first. Uh, again, I met John Ellis through a recommendation i i actually uh, i'm a little embarrassed to say i wasn't aware of of his name and john had been out there for uh, at least a couple of years at that point um and he came on recommendation and he just played great it, uh actually perhaps i should mention he was recommended from uh, we had a guitar player for many years um who was a who was a terrific guitar player named keith gans and he was a big part of this group for uh, for quite a while um keith uh, now resides in uh, north carolina and so uh keith recommended john ellis when this is back when keith was in the band uh, certainly and this is maybe uh five and a half six years ago maybe and uh it's funny I've known John Hart, the guitar player, longest, probably 20, 21, 22 years. And uh, when when Keith uh, relocated, I, as, uh, 
sad as we were that, uh, well, happy for him because he wanted to relocate. Yeah. Uh, we were sad to see him go because we had developed so much together. I felt it was really an opportune uh, time to have uh, someone new such as John Hart, who was who's brought new dimensions to the group. Uh, John Hart and Keith Gans play very differently uh, stylistically. So uh, John Hart, um, who I've known really the longest out of uh, everyone, um, has really uh, opened things up in a different kind of way, which we're really, uh, all of us are enjoying. And I think John Hart's enjoying it too. One thing I want to ask about uh, that I, I noted from your bio was that, uh, and during this interview, we're both enjoying the company of your dog, Baby, who's a, a rescue dog, and uh, put in a plug for people to get rescue dogs because there's tons of dogs that need homes. Absolutely. But uh, working, volunteering in a, in a shelter had uh, an unexpected impact on your bass playing for a while. Um, can you talk a little bit about that if you're comfortable talking about it? Well, sure. Um I've actually never uh, never spoken about this uh, publicly, um, but perhaps maybe the first thing I'll mention is uh, um, I had a little extra time, a little bit of extra time. I was spending quite a bit on the road, and when I had uh, a fairly long stretch where I was going to be home, I've, I mean, as you, I believe, as you've said about yourself, you're an animal lover, and uh, me being very much the same, I thought, you know, we have the, we had this tough uh, animal shelter in Yonkers, New York. It's still there. It's a tough place, boy. Um, it's a big city, a lot of animals, a lot of dogs, a lot of tough, a lot of tough cases. And uh, I thought, you know. I think I can help, and I think I can get something out of this. So I did uh, volunteer for a long time, and uh, I really did. It was, boy, it was hard work. Um, these Some of these dogs are just, uh, they're a whirlwind of energy and fear and uh, um, things that you, things that we don't really understand, because when you see an animal, they can't exactly tell you what they've gone through, but you can kind of guess by their actions. Um, sure. 
fearful actions or aggressive or sometimes both, uh, perhaps that they, well, most certainly that they went through something. Um, and again, it's about trust. You know, they probably trusted uh, someone um, in terms of a human being and that person uh, or those people let them down, let the animal down or mistreated the animal um, in one way or another. I got so much out of it just in terms of uh, life and in terms of uh, trying to help and make a difference, you know, one animal at a time. And in certain cases, it was as simple as uh, spending time with an animal. And some of these animals, were they didn't even make it out of the shelter. They're, they were actually euthanized, you know, and trying to just improve uh, their lives um, a little bit with, yeah. with the time that they had left. Um, so, uh, I mean, I didn't get into... I think the first thing I asked is, uh, before I volunteered was... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the sound of baby attacking her own feet. <laughs> she's, uh, she's practicing self-defense by attacking her own feet. <laughs> Thanks, baby. <laughs> and as I said, she's she is by far not the first animal who has uh, made uh, the recording debut here on the jazz sessions. So uh, we're totally fine with that. So I'm sorry. Anyway, you were oh, saying no, bef- before no, the uh, right. before the attack, <laughs> right? You know, the first thing I asked hey, the, when I was uh, signing up to volunteer was, you know, do you euthanize animals? And they said, well, generally we don't. So I, I didn't know quite what I was signing myself up for. Um, and, and in fact, some of those animals that I spent time with um, uh, were, in fact, euthanized. You know, I consider these, I mean, these are kind of, they're kind of like people I'll never forget. Yeah. But in that entire experience, I, I um, got so much... Uh, out of it and um it was so i still i think about it every day um but then there was that one really (laughs) really life-changing day um well actually i adopted my dog which was uh um kind of a life-changing thing i ended up saving her life uh and she in turn ended up saving mine basically several months later i went to walk an, an animal that i never actually tried to walk before and uh I put the uh, I put my hand in in the cage, and I was was going to put the leash on, on this particular dog. And uh, in the process of doing that, he just grabbed my finger. And fortunately, the cage wasn't open at this time; it was still closed because that was sort of a safety measure. But unfortunately, my hand was in the cage with this dog's mouth around it, and he ended up taking off the uh, tip of my uh, middle finger and my left hand, and it hurt. Uh, quite a bit and so I went to the hospital and I was very fortunate to uh, have uh, a really good plastic surgeon who just did a little bit of I guess you'd say minor surgery uh, that day and uh, after that I had uh, the support of a a very good physical therapist and even a massage therapist and uh, support of uh, my dog um, who knew something had happened and uh, my future wife um, and uh, a couple great friends. And I was sort of going on some sort of blind faith at that time because I couldn't, I couldn't use that finger for four and a half months. I used a different finger instead. And in fact, I'd never really stopped playing. It was just for about a week or maybe eight days because of the pain in my hand. 
and I just kept I kept basically playing through it. I tried to find new ways to play, and I was able to succeed with m- most of that. And finally, I got the use of my uh, my finger back four and a half months later, and um, it's shorter than the other finger. Uh, I should say that my other middle finger is in my right hand. But I was incredibly lucky because if the dog took off more of that finger or two fingers, uh, this would probably be a very different uh, interview. Yeah. Can you uh, can you talk about how you use that hand when you're playing the bass for people who maybe can't picture it in their head? Well, at first, uh, um, most of us uh, as bass players, um, for those of us if, uh, – who might not know we use our uh, our first finger our second finger our first finger is our forefinger next to our thumb right in terms of pressing the strings down if we are right-handed we use our first or forefinger we use our middle finger or our second finger and our fourth finger to press the strings down in okay. uh, basic uh, way that we play the bass when we play higher on the instrument we put our thumb down and then our first, second, and then our third finger. So in terms of what I was able to do for the first two and a half weeks, I had my first finger and my fourth finger. That was it. So I had, instead of maybe three fingers, I had two. That was, uh, I never tried to do that, nor was I ever forced to do that my whole life, but that's what I, uh, that's what I was doing. And so I couldn't play faster tempos. It was just too difficult to, to get around. And if I pressed my uh, uh, second finger or middle finger down, the one that was hurt, um, it was uh, excruciating. I can't really quite describe the pain, but excruciating pain, such as like an electrical shock, wow. thus causing me to yell quite loud. Wow. <laughs> and a couple of times <laughs> I did. It's, you know, pain is a really good way to learn not to do something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but when you've been doing something for 25 years, um, specifically, it, learning to do something and then it's stuck in your brain, it takes some rewiring of your brain to, and pain is a good rewiring tactic, I guess, but... Yeah, instrumentalists always refer to muscle memory, things that their fingers just do without, you know, faster than they have to consciously think about it. The fingers just know the patterns on the bridge or the, uh, or on the uh, the neck, I should say, or on the keys of their saxophone or trumpet or whatever. Their fingers just know where to go. And so yours were programmed to go someplace they could no longer Abs- well, Right, absolutely right. Um, and so uh, at first, when I was, when I finally had the enough... Uh, my hand was in enough, I guess, comfort that I could use only my first or my fourth finger. Um, that's what I was doing. Basically, my finger that had got bitten was uh, wrapped up. Whenever I would move my hand, the stitches in the end of the finger would, um, uh, I guess, the, the stitches would pull against the finger and you know, we have so many nerve endings in our fingers and on the tips in order to be human beings, uh, in order to grab things and uh, uh, find little... Kind of fine motor skills? Or, yeah, yeah, or little motor skills to pick up a glass without crushing it, um, to separate little uh, pieces of paper, things like that. Um, in order to feel that, uh, we have tons and tons of nerve endings. So when you hurt yourself on the end of your fingertips, it's, it can be very, very painful. And again, speaking of rewiring my nerves or anyone who would go through this experience, your nerves are rewiring 
themselves. So it's a constant uh, a reworking of your finger trying to figure out what to, what to do with itself as it heals. Uh, and so after this, after about two and a half weeks, I was able to add my third finger, which normally doesn't get used until the upper register of the bass. So I had to kind of rewire my brain in order to use my first finger or my, or my forefinger, my third finger, or is that my ring, ring finger? finger yeah. uh, and, and then my fourth finger. So after a little while, I was able to pick up enough, uh, enough steam to be able to play some up-tempos again and get around the instrument. Um, and as this was going on, my middle finger starting to heal. So even if I did accidentally press it down, it was no longer a, like a screaming kind of experience for people who were near nearby. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, that's how I got by for about four and a half months doing that. And then when my finger was finally well enough uh, the bandage was off and it was well enough to play the bass, um, my middle finger that is, um, it was like having brand new newborn baby skin. So like I knew how my finger would work because technically I still had the muscle memory, but aside from the finger being in a lot of pain, um, it had skin that was delicate. It wasn't even just normal skin like on, on another finger that doesn't have a callus it was brand new newborn skin right so that was another thing i had to overcome uh and build up a callus and desensitize the finger these are all i think these are just normal things for finger injuries but if you're an instrumentalist um where you need your fingers or a bass player perhaps a guitar player or a pianist um uh, these are difficult uh things to get past and perhaps specifically on the bass where you have thicker strings and action or, or height height of the strings that you have to push down and if you're going to slide or glissando with that finger it's like uh, it's a new dimension in um, kind of the unknown Forgive me if this is a stupid question, but why did you keep playing during the time that you were injured and your finger was healing? Oh uh, no, that's a great question. Um, I I had to, I mean I just had to. I didn't know 
what else to what else to do i mean i took i had to take eight days off and that was strange enough um i just i had to keep playing and i didn't want to i didn't want this injury frankly i didn't want it to overcome me and uh, even at that time i didn't want anyone to know about it because i was afraid people would uh perhaps think that I might not be able to play again or perhaps uh, think that I had lost my entire finger um, and I didn't want the uh, exaggerated possibilities to, I mean, it was bad enough as it was. I didn't want the exaggerated possibilities uh, to get out there. And frankly, I didn't see my finger um, from the time that the dog bit it. I didn't look. Um, from the time the dog bit that finger until I got my stitches out, which was almost two months later. I never saw it. I didn't want to see it as it was uh, bandaged up and, and wrapped up and uh, uh, with the stitches coming out of it. And I had to get the dressing changed fairly often. And that was another excruciating um, uh, experience and that uh, something I'll never uh, forget. Um, and it's something I'm very glad I <laughs> don't have to get those done anymore. But while I was getting my dressing changed, I didn't even look at the finger. I wouldn't look. I always would look away. It was on purpose. And looking back, for at least for me, for who I am and for who I was, uh, it was the best decision because I didn't need to have that imprint on my mind how bad my finger looked in order for it to be wrapped up uh, in order to think wow you know i'm i wonder if i'm going to be able to play again i did ask the surgeon to point to my opposite finger uh middle finger in my right hand and show me approximately how much was was missing and i remember thinking okay that's not too bad how can i do this you know think, thinking about that logistically into the future but i never even looked at the thing purposely I, mean, I was curious, but I just didn't. Uh, and for me, that was the right choice. Yeah. I know that wasn't your question, but, no, but it's a, I had to keep playing. Thing. I had to keep playing. And now, uh, I guess my, my final question on this topic, now that you have your hand back, uh, are there changes in the way you play that, uh, that linger, things you did that you had to rewire your brain? Is it back to its old way of functioning now or – it is, um, it, and that that took a while. Also, uh, it took a while to rewire my brain back, um, and of course the finger, uh, the angle that the string hits the finger is different. It's like uh, it's the same finger with the same muscle memory, with a different um, feeling and sometimes a different ap approach. Uh, let's say maybe the upper register is a little more. That's where you start. A bass player would start putting their thumb down. Uh, on the fingerboard and then use their first, second, and third fingers, as I was perhaps talking about earlier. Uh, there's still the way that the string falls uh, onto that that uh, finger. Uh, it, actually, the string tends to fall right across the scar, so if I'm not careful, that can still can be quite painful. Yeah. It's just one of those things uh, over time. I think it'll improve, and you just, you know, have to live with it. And it's much better than the alternative. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me ask you, you you mentioned when you started telling the story uh, about what happened to your hand that you had never told this story before. Do you think it's, is it 
important that you tell it? Does it have some function in the world to talk about what happened to you? Well, you know, uh, I think I was asking myself the question, and I think I asked myself that right after it happened, um, why this happened. And uh, I'm still, in certain ways, still trying to, although I don't, I don't harp on that question, I'm still trying to uh, find the answer to that uh, at various times. I think uh, it enabled me to become a better musician. Um, perhaps it enabled me to become a better bass player. I hope maybe, maybe a little better of a person. But uh, I wonder if there's other people, uh, not just musicians uh, or or uh, instrumentalists, but other people out there who have had a sustained or maybe a similar uh, injury, and if I may be able to help them through my own experience. So I guess that uh, as of yet, I haven't, uh, uh, to my knowledge, been able to help anyone directly, but I welcome that uh, Although I hope no one goes through, <laughs> nope, no one goes right. through this. Uh, I assure you. Uh, but maybe if someone has to go through this, perhaps um, I may be of some help uh, to them. It's interesting to me another facet of this that what happened to you happened in the course of doing good. It's not like you didn't get cut in a knife fight. I mean, you got injured while you were doing something that is extremely morally. Uh, good and very, a noble thing to do, you know, which is helping other living beings. Uh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. But, you know, life has a lot of irony to it, and it's hard to – it's it's really hard to figure all this out, which, which just brings me back to the questions as to maybe why this happened. Um, but oftentimes uh, adversity or some difficulty or some – uh, something of a painful nature brings something of a much greater nature um, in the larger picture. Uh, and that's really, even though I know this has helped me in certain ways, um, it's hard to tell that this uh, won't, or well, I'm trying to turn this into a positive, so it's, it's hard to know that this uh, might or might not uh help me or someone else even in a larger uh, way down the road so sure. you know <laughs> yet to be determined i guess huh? absolutely and i feel a pretty big uh, sense of that just you know for being a uh, independent uh, as i think everyone is out there jazz musician so um i have a sense of definite sense of determination <laughs> Thank you. 
shifting to a happier note, the, uh, which won't be difficult to do on almost any topic, uh, the new record contains uh, your compositions, and I wanted to ask just a little bit about uh, how you write. Do you write uh, at the piano? Do you write uh, on the bass? Do you write out of your head? A combination? All, all three and a combination of all three. Yeah. Um, I uh, When I first started writing music, which was a little while back, I was only at the piano and then when I, a uh, little while after that, started writing a little bit at the bass. In the midst of all that, I guess, just hearing melodies out of my head and uh, trying to remember what they... Let's say if I was out of the house doing doing something, driving, walking around, going out for a run. I like to run sometimes. Uh, trying to remember that melody and get it down on paper before I forgot. Um, some really great advice came my way when I was a, when I was a kid. I had the f- great fortune of studying with uh, a great uh, orchestra one of the great orchestrators and a composer a great composer named Bill Finnegan and uh, as in Sauter Finnegan right that's the uh, absolutely yeah. absolutely um, and Bill had uh, so much advice and he had a great student and she was a uh, uh, the student I'm speaking of, uh, sadly, is no longer with us. Her name was Julie Cavadini. And one of the things that Julie told me, I was at a lesson. This is when I was a kid. I guess it was an orchestration slash composition lesson. And she said, uh, I think I asked her a question, which was something like, uh, "What are th- I think I asked her what will develop as as you, or as specifically about me, as I uh, grow up and uh, try to improve on, uh, on my music. I was I must have been 18 or 19 at the time, and she's one of the things she said to me really stuck with me. And again, she was uh, a student of uh, Bill Finnegan's also. Uh, she said, uh, "Your memory for what you write without having to put it down on paper will improve." So I've I've always remembered that. I'm still kind of <laughs> waiting for that to happen. <laughs> so I try to write it down on paper as if it's a good idea as soon as possible because there's a couple tunes that or a couple good beginnings of tunes that got lost out there, which I'm hoping to get back for several years now. So I've got to get it on paper <laughs> as quick as possible. Can you, uh, can you tell people a little bit, uh, maybe just a sentence or two, about who Bill Fittingham was and how you came to study with him? Um, when I write out of high school... Uh, I went to college at in Bridgeport, Connecticut, at a, a university called University of Bridgeport, uh, unusually enough. And uh, Bill just happened to be the uh, um, the head of the jazz studies there, and he was one of the great orchestrators um, coming out of the 30s, I guess, originally from Rumson, New Jersey, if my memory serves me. Uh, he wrote for, uh, when he was a kid, that is, he wrote for people like Glenn Miller, um, Tommy Dorsey. Um, so he was this young guy um, who uh, was writing for these uh, these seriously established greats um, in the big band era. And uh, I guess he also did commercial work, and eventually he had his own uh, orchestra. It was a, uh, essentially a big band at orchestra where they had actual percussion instruments and um, harp and sometimes strings and a French horn, um, and that was called the Sauter Finnegan Orchestra. And that was, he partnered up with Eddie Sauter, 
another great orchestrator and great composer and they had this group they both fronted the group and traveled around and uh, uh, some great great recordings some great orchestrations that's pretty exciting I mean that's uh, you got a chance to study with someone who was there for the the height of the the swing and big band era which is pretty cool it seems like it's kind of a rare rare gift <laughs> I uh, so glad to have known him uh, he was like a father he really was like a father to me, and he was probably like a father to most people he knew. Um, maybe the only thing, you know, it's funny, I'm not an orchestrator at all. It's like uh, I love to write music. I consider myself a composer, but I'm just not an orchestrator. Yet, maybe whatever uh, orchestrating I, I may do is on the simplest level, which is, you know, a little less equals a little... Uh, is it, uh, juxtaposed against a little more high versus low, um, soft versus loud, really basic stuff, yet to me really effective stuff. And those are the things um, that Bill Finnegan taught me. And these are the things that like, I think about every day and will remain with me the rest of my life. Just simple, basic, really strong things. And from one of the greatest orchestrators ever, I learned just the basics, which is not saying a lot about me, but it's saying a lot about him, I assure you. Well, and a lot of times these days, dynamics are a radical act. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, my guest uh, is the composer and bassist, Sean Smith. Uh, The new record is called Trust. And, uh, man, it's been – first of all, I I thank you for for telling me the – the less happy story, but I think people will uh, will be uh, inspired by it and interested in it. And uh, thank you for having me in your home and spending some time with me on the show. Thanks for coming here. It's, it's been a real pleasure, and I appreciate you asking all these questions. I'm just happy to be able to talk to you. That's great. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> Music from bassist Sean Smith, a super nice guy and uh, an excellent bass player. I actually had the pleasure to sh- see Sean. Well, that's apparently hard to say. Uh, I didn't actually even know he was playing. I uh, I dropped in at the 55 bar. Uh, my friend Joe Laurie was there, and Keith Gans was there. It was Keith's gig, and Sean was on the bass. So I got a chance to see him live, which was cool. And he's often at the 55 bar about once a month, as you heard in the interview. So uh, look him up online. Hit the link to his website is in the show notes at uh, thejazzsession.com. And then uh, go out and see him if you're in New York City, okay? That's it. That's the show. This is The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. It's presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. They don't give me any money, so I need you to. Uh, It can be small increments. That's totally fine. And if you want to do one of the higher levels, $50 a month or $500 a year, you'll be mentioned on every single show. So if you've got some sort of uh, company maybe that you run 
or you're just the kind of person who'd like to hear your name said out loud twice a week and three times a week during the month of May, what the heck? Kick in 50 bucks a month or $500 a year. And also for members, there are some bonus shows and other things in the members-only section, which you'll get a password to when you join. But most importantly, as the public radio people always say, you'll get the good feeling that comes with supporting this quality programming. And now, the doo-wop classics. So get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back here next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.